Hey, if you're enjoying this show, uh, consider supporting us on our Patreon. You can get cool perks like access to these episodes a week before they go public, and you can pick an album for us to review. Any support is greatly appreciated, so if you feel inclined, go to patreon.com slash polyphonicpress. You're listening to Polyphonic Press, a podcast for music lovers. Join your hosts, Jeremy Boyd and John Van Dyke, as they take a deep dive into a classic album and analyze it track by track. Hey, welcome to Polyphonic Press. I'm Jeremy Boyd. And I'm John Van Dyke. And uh, let's get uh, right into it. Let's pick the album that we're going to be listening to this week. The album we are going to hear is Joni Mitchell's Hegira. Or Hira? Hira. I don't actually know how to say that. It is Hegira. Okay. Yeah, it's Hegira. Hegira. Fair enough. Okay, so what about this album? It's uh, is the eighth studio album by Canadian singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell. The songs on the album were written during a series of road trips in 1975 and 1976 and reflect events that occurred during those road trips, including several romantic relationships she had at the time. Character characterized lyrically dense, sprawling songs, as well as overdubbed fretless bass played by Jaco Pastorius. Cool. Oh, wow. Um, Hajira continued the musician's journey beyond her pop records towards the freer jazz-inspired music that would implement on later recordings. Some of the songs were written while Mitchell traveled as a member of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review Tour, and she performed the album's opening track with the band at their final concert, later released as Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz. Cool. So the first track on the album is called Coyote. Actually, I think I know this song. Um, I think. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, let's get into the first song, uh, which is called Coyote. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios and you're up early on your ranch. That was very uh, spacey. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was an interesting use of like, uh, what was it, like a flanger or phase shifter on the... Yeah, I, I think it was a phaser. Yeah. Yeah. On, uh, I don't know if it was just a, a guitar, but it seemed to have been like actually placed over top of like a, a, uh, a track of multiple instruments. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure about that, but it was an interesting use of it yeah yeah i I think it was probably over a couple of tracks because it wasn't over everything no but uh it's it's not like the song um oh what's the song by the small faces the 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 flange goes over the whole mix um i can't remember the it's the biggest hit that they had i can't remember the name of it oh yeah um that's uh, Tin Soldier, isn't it? No. Um, uh, it's going to bug me if I don't look it up. Ichiku Park. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ichiku Park. Uh, they did yeah. do that on there. Yeah. But uh, I, I, and I, it's interesting hearing the fretless bass in there too. And mm-hmm. how, what's interesting to me is how, how prominent that sound became for this type of music in the 80s. And I didn't yeah. really realize that until now. It's like, wow, that was kind of was everywhere for a while. Well, that it, it's uh, it's funny. The that fretless bass sound is uh, very. I mean, you heard it a lot in the eighties. Uh, I know it's all over um, uh, Paul Simon's. Um, oh, for pity's sakes, what's the name of that uh, album? Uh, Graceland. Yeah, the Graceland album. Um, but. It it lasted behind. It seems like more of a folk rock thing. Mm-hmm. Like you would hear that right, certainly through the '90s and even into the early 2000s, and it still turns up every once in a while. I, I know I've heard uh, things by uh, uh, James Keelahan and um, oh um, <sighs> Stephen Fearing with that sort of stuff on there. Uh, the David Woodhouse sort of style playing the bass, and I guess. Yeah, it's just a, a very. It's a it's a tone that that uh, honestly doesn't uh, turn up everywhere, but it only turns up in like a certain style of uh, uh, rock or folk or combination of the two. Of that, uh, um, you, you wouldn't hear it in like hair metal or anything. Like no, that. probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't but, see Metallica all of a sudden pulling out the fretless bass. Going, hey, hey, uh, guys, here's a. Yeah, it wouldn't exactly. Yeah, I don't, it's it's hard to say what they would do, but it yeah. wouldn't sound the way you would think it would. No, it's, it, if they were to do that, so. it might actually sound cool in that context yeah. with some but, uh, overdrive on it or something. Yeah, it might be sort of kind of cool. Hmm, this is a food for thought. Anyway, um, yeah, so the fretless bass and the. Flanger, interesting. Uh, sort of, st- it's like a story song. Yeah, and she's sort of talking about this uh, character that she calls the coyote. That's just kind of in and out of her life, and who honestly sounds like he's a, a little bit of a flaky kind of dude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, she. I I was just reading about the song, and it's about. Um, how I guess it's it's about her it's really more about her and mm. how because she's a touring musician it's hard to make connections with people mm. yeah well it's hard to I mean you can make connections with a whole lot of people but it's hard to make a you know a really strong solid connection because you're gonna be you're you're just you're bouncing around all over the place yeah. and a lot of these people are static yeah and uh Yep. Well, I mean, as far as touring goes, I don't know if I could actually do it at this point. Um, I mean, I would do it and it would be fun, but I think it would get, uh, I would get, I would go a bit crazy, I think. I couldn't spend like an entire year doing nothing but touring. No. If I did a tour, I might pick a couple months out of out of a while and go to a couple of places come back maybe then continue 
or do a different tour or continue the tour for another couple of months, like a month or two later to go to a couple of other places. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, depending on where you are established as a musician, like how much freedom do you have to actually dictate that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, at the beginning stage, you probably have a little more control over that. When you start to get into more of a, um, uh, you've got a whole bunch of, you got an entire record industry depending on you to make the money. You have less control over that. And then when you become really big, you've got all the control over that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Not to mention, you know, spending that much time with those people, with a few mm. people, you probably want to kill each other by the end. Um, Just ask the Beatles. Well, you ask the Beatles. Well, they... they seem to be uh, when they were touring they seemed to be on good terms with each other it was everybody else that yeah but they were also constantly in this even when they weren't touring they were constantly in the studio because they were expected to put this out and put that out and then there's still so much association with them but yeah i mean living on top of each other even when they weren't touring is basically but there's a lot of bands have definitely suffered through that yeah, but uh, I can understand where sh- she's coming from too, writing this song, and just it's hard to to make a connection with anyone. Mm. But let's get into the next song, which is called Amelia. The drone of flying engines is a song so wild and blue. It scrambles time and seasons if it gets. I really like that one. That one was pretty cool. That one's got a lot of, uh, uh, it's very visually, uh, stimulating the, the way, the way she's described things. There's a lot of visual cues in it. Um, yeah, it's very, um, cinematic. Like you can actually picture it. Yeah. That's the word. Yeah. Also the, uh, Again, the textures of the instrument. This is going to be an interesting album, I can tell, just by the textures that she's using on this stuff. Like, the acoustic guitar with, I guess it's like a Barkus Bailey pickup right, like, underneath the bridge. Picking up this thing, being filtered through, it almost sounds electric, but you can clear it's definitely, here it's definitely an acoustic. There's nothing, this isn't a 335 or something like that. Um, uh, Giving that real, it's almost like a, an earthy metallic feet sound. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Um, and also, uh, pedal steel, or I think it's a pedal steel, might have been a lap steel in the background. I could hear, uh, Fender Rhodes in there occasionally, and I think there was probably something like a Telecaster with an Ebo on it at times, unless that was just pedal steel doing stuff as well. I don't know. It might have been the pedal steel. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure that was a pedal steel because I could hear the, the 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 way the notes bended. It sounded like a pedal steel. Um, and I think was there a, a Glockenspiel in there as well, or was that the Fender Rhodes? I think that was the Fender. Uh, the Glocken. Yeah, the. It, I mean, I wouldn't. I don't know what all she put in that thing. I was trying to figure it out. If you heard a Glockenspiel. It's possible that might have been the Fender Rhodes. And some of the upper keys, they sound very chimey. Yeah. Oh, it's the hammer. Um, it's a vibraphone. It's actually, yeah. Well, oh, a vibraphone. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So you looked it up. I just looked it up, yeah. <laughs> Victor Feldman, if you're curious, played the vibraphone on that song. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's interesting hearing those two instruments together, that and the pedal steel, because mm-hmm. you don't, you associate pedal steel, obviously, with country music. Um, I know it's used in other contexts as well, but that's yeah. kind of the association that it has. And um, you do you wouldn't necessarily think that it would work in almost a jazz setting like this, but it a does. Folk jazz a setting, folk jazz yeah. thing, but it absolutely does. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting the way that they kind of sort of stacked on top of each other. Yeah, I agree. Um, very interesting textures. Yeah. Very interesting cinematic song with like these sort of ethereal textures going on underneath it. And is I think if you were to add something or take something away, it, it, it would all just fall apart. It's just, it's perfect the way it is. It's, there's, n- I always, whenever I hear a piece of music, I, my producer brain kicks in and I think mm-hmm. about what I could do differently. Um, sometimes not, not with everything, but sometimes I'll think, oh, that something like something else, another different drum beat would be better here or a different guitar tone or whatever. Um, but I don't think I could, I I don't think I would change a thing on here. No, it's, it's just perfect the way it is. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll move on Let's to the next track. Move on to the next one, which is called Furry Sings the Blues. Mm-hmm. Kinky. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I don't think it's got anything to do with it. high heel shoes. Old Furry Sings the Blues. Propped up in his bed with his dentures and his leg removed. And Jenny's there. So I immediately know who she's singing about like i don't i don't know who it is but i i mm-hmm. i know like the way she describes him i i, I know exactly i can just picture yeah. him in my mind um she's talking about beale street so it's probably obviously talking about memphis um i get the sense that this is a guy who was maybe a musician in the 50s kind of washed up a little bit, didn't really do anything. That's that's kind of the picture that I get. Yeah. Yeah, uh, 50s or before. Yeah, he's this, uh, he's this old blues guy, and it's just kind of like... Yeah, he's sort of living his, his life, and I don't know, for whatever reason, he's lost a leg and, and lost his teeth and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So he's... he's uh, I don't think he's got a lot of money. He's just kind of, you know, living out his life because everybody he knows is, you know, out on the street in Memphis. So mm-hmm. that's where he's hanging out. Yeah. It's uh, it's kind of sad, but I, I know it, it's, it's just the... I don't know, and I don't know if this is a real person or if it's just what she's observed. Again, this, is, this album was... Um, written while she was on tour so it very well could have been just walking around in memphis on a tour stop somewhere and she just yeah taking it all in and wrote a song about it 
Um, the instruments on this were interesting. Uh, I like the harmonica throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually was, Neil Young playing that. The harmonica? Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Um, but yeah, it was more of that uh, sort of electrified acoustic and the uh, um, uh, front space in the back. You could definitely hear. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it seems to be a, a pretty a core um, sort of... Uh, production sound around this album is to sort of be a little bit uh, on the different side of uh, sound textures being put on, especially for 1976. Yeah. This seems to be... um, A little ahead of the curve. A little ahead of the curve for for some of these sounds, for sure. That would later become very trendy. Um, Yes. Not in a bad way, uh, no. but uh, definitely uh, ahead of uh, ahead of her time with this album. I'm wondering who produced this. She produced it with Henry Louis. I don't know who. Oh, he produced a lot of stuff. This kind of stuff, like uh, he. I don't know. He did some stuff with Neil Young. Um, Leonard Cohen not surprising I mean it is always interesting when a musician you hear their some of their work and it's like well this sounds like 10 years after this it's like oh well yeah, I know I mean it, I guess it had to come from somewhere exactly you know um, is he like a Canadian producer it seems that's who he's working with for the most part uh, uh German-born sound engineer and record producer known for his work on many many critically acclaimed and successful rock and folk albums of the 1970s and 1980s, particularly those by Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Stephen Bishop. Uh, I guess he's just a German guy living in (laughs) the U.S. producing records. Interesting. Um, But yeah, he's got a lot of Canadians on his roster. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, so the next song is called A Strange Boy. A strange boy is weaving a course of grace and heaven on a yellow skateboard through midday sidewalk traffic. Right, another song full of cool layers and textures. Um, I like the guitar. I, I I I don't exactly know what the tone of the guitar is. I know I've heard that tone before, in a lot of stuff that came after this. But it was playing some really f- funky lines and just kind of like it complex lines, but just kind of in the background as well. Yeah, there was a... Uh, it sounded like a Stratocaster to me. Um, it, it sounded very... Uh, almost like a... almost like a David Gilmore sort of Strat tone um, being played in the back. And, uh, yeah, again, that uh, electrified acoustic sound um, carrying it around in the back. Uh, the drums were around this time. They were really just... Uh, Sort of hand drums like uh, or um, 
djembes and stuff being played through there. And it's sort of a soft, nice sort of like, uh, it sort of marches it along without being too uh, uh, heavy-handed. Yeah. Yeah. No pun intended. Well, it's, <laughs> it's um, I kept, I, I'm not saying that the, 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 uh, that I would change anything or anything like that, but I kind of kept waiting for the song to pick up in tempo. Mm. It, not that I, not that it, I don't think it should, but I think it could have you if it wanted to, it to. to. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. There's some, yeah, every once in a while I hear something and the first time I hear it, I keep expecting it to go. Is it going to pick up? Yeah. Nope. It's not picking up. Yeah. That's all right. But, uh, and if it did, if it would have, that would have been cool too. But if it, it could have gone either way and it would have been, it would have been good. Yeah. I was honestly, I was listening to it and I wasn't expecting it to pick up. Um, I'm sort of just sort of listening to the story of the, of this, uh, this guy who's clearly, he's probably in his, was he's been on the in the army and stuff like that all the way i'm guessing he's probably in his 40s or 50s or something like that he might be a, an ex-vietnam vet or something like that but he's I decided that. i'm just you know gonna live my life i'm gonna get on a skateboard and that's how i'm getting around yeah. and yeah all you punk ass kids can get out of my way. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah which is kind of cool yeah yeah no that was yeah that was absolutely and and it's uh I think if it had um, picked up in tempo or if it had mm. done something different, I don't think the the lyrics would have meant as much or you wouldn't have paid attention to the lyrics as much. Obviously, that's the most important thing, especially yeah, with the, a Joni Mitchell album. Is She's really trying to... I mean, she's telling a story and she wants the story to be heard Yeah, more than anything. I mean, the music, of course, is important to it, but... But the 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 uh, the lyrics and the story are are her showcase exactly. So and uh, yeah, but as far as the music goes, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's subtle, but it's yes. it's uh, there's a lot going on, and it, you have to really pay close attention to uh, to listen to what's actually happening. Yeah, you can you can sort of tell that they really. Um, they paid attention to what, what sort of sounds they were going to be, uh, um, pushing, pushing. Everything that they chose was really well thought out and that everything was deliberate and everything was there. They they weren't just flying by the seat of their pants. They were, they were, they were very carefully choosing everything. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Let's uh, get into the next song, which is the title track, uh, Hejira. There's comfort in melancholy When there's no need to explain It's just a... One thing I noticed about this album is a lot of the songs have very long fade-outs at the end. Hmm. Like thirty second fade outs. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so while you're sitting there hovering for the bio, oh, it's coming to wrap it up. Yeah. Tick, tick, tick. Yep. Um 
I thought it was really in- interesting how uh, Jaco Pastorius's um, bass had almost like a uh, a sitar buzz to it at times. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, and in that song, there were two bass lines. There was that the fretless bass, and then there was another bass in there as well. It might have been a double track sort of thing. Yeah, it was. Um, um, it was odd to have two bass lines, but it worked as well. Like they weren't yeah, interfering cool. with each other or anything like that. No. Um, one of the things that I noticed on this track as well is uh, we had talked about how all the sounds were very well thought out and methodical and all that, but it sounded like a lot of the the musicians were also free to improvise a lot. Yeah, I think so. And they were sort of also like improvising while she's singing, which oh, I yeah. thought was interesting as well. It's like this: I, the 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 basic song is here, but you guys yeah. are free to do whatever you need to do, or whatever you want to do. Just I, I think the sounds and and the overall sort of atmosphere is very methodical. But as for what they're actually specifically playing i guess maybe they've got a, a she had a basic idea of what what the track was going to be but she left enough room for them to really kind of expand on and sort of you know do what they felt sort of suited as well just l- let the musicians have a little bit of freedom on the tracks as well yeah which i think is really cool because obviously this is a Joni Mitchell album and a lot of people would want would not want to give up that much control over the recording. Yeah, they their would name's want, on it. Yeah. Their name is on it. They, this is my album. I'm deciding what every everything is going on here. Whereas she is like, well, maybe she's a little more open to collaborating and hearing different ideas, which I think is really cool. And you, I think, when you have that um attitude you open yourself up to new possibilities whereas if you're just you know and i'm not saying she doesn't have a vision or she doesn't know what she's doing but she is op- magic doesn't happen if you're too rigid exactly yeah yeah um and, and if you you lose out on input from other people if you close yourself off from it, you, yeah. you, you might, someone might have an idea and it's something you never thought of and, and it's, and it makes or breaks the album. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's really cool that she has that attitude that, well, this is, this is my album, but it's, it's a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. She, she's open to, uh, ideas from, she, she's willing to try things that uh, ne- didn't necessarily come out of her own head. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... To improve her idea. Yeah. And it seems like th- on this album, the um, the notes aren't so important as the overall sound and texture. Yes. Like, they're creating absolutely. these soundscapes rather than um, melodies or chord structures it's like the overall atmosphere is more important than the um rhythm or the the melody 
He was an ASMR session. They just didn't <laughs> yeah. know it. Yeah. <laughs> Before ASMR was a exactly was a thing. Uh, yeah. So let's move on to the next one. Uh, it's called "Song for Sharon." And I saw the long white dress of love on a storefront mannequin. Okay, there was a lot going on with that track. Um, I wasn't expecting to hear the background singers. Yeah, that came in. That's uh, that's not a, a sound that's really so far anywhere else on the album. No. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. There were moments in there where it almost... Um, uh, and, and, well, first of all, the, the, the background singers were, I like the way that it was imaged in the stereo image left and right. Um, and I thought the m- melody they were singing was interesting. It almost, almost didn't fit, but it did. <laughs> I don't know how, it was, how else to say it. It came out of left field, but oddly enough, slotted right in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely the longest track on the on the album. And I think because of the, the jazz style, it almost felt like a jam. It felt like... Mm. Um, like uh, like uh, uh, a couple episodes ago, like the Grateful Dead doing something or th- on a mu- different style, but a sort of uh, similar feel. Yeah. Um. It's uh. Yeah, it, something like that. I don't know. I I don't have a lot to say about it. <laughs> yeah. I thought the uh, again the 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 flange on the. Uh, on the guitar sort of gave it a an interesting texture once again. Yeah. Just flo- floating in there with the, uh, yeah, and the backup singers. It was uh, definitely an interesting, and they, they have a very interesting part to play, and it's and it's sort of interesting how, how that sort of worked in there. Yeah, it was like a, like a call and response type of thing. Almost. Uh, almost, but not really. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's hard to describe. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, it's its own thing, honestly. Yeah, that's what Joni does. That's what she does. Um, she don't take cues from nobody. Nobody. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um. So the next song is called "Black Crow." interesting um the uh the the distorted guitar it was interesting to hear that not as a main instrument but as a texture yeah exactly um i really like that yeah it was really cool swooping in i think that song might be my favorite but i kind of like the uh 
you know, the funky sort of, it, it, it felt to me like uh, more so than most of the songs on this track. I mean, I, I don't know exactly if this is the case or not, but uh, this song sounded like it, it came into the studio a little bit more as a fleshed out tune. Yeah. More so than, than a lot of the other ones. Um, again, some of the other ones might be a lot more, uh, they, they might have been too, but this, this had like a, a real like groove, but also a very, uh, these jazzy chords. Mm -hmm. And there was a very definite, uh, chord progression going through, but it was a very, again, jazzy on the strange side, sort of, but I liked it. I thought it was very cool. Yeah. No. Yeah, I agree. I think this was, uh. This yeah this this song is, feels a little more a little more put together in the sense like you said like this this feels like more of a I have this song ready to go and maybe this was the jumping off point for the album who knows um yeah the I I I always like I, I it sounded like the guitar that distorted guitar was playing um. Like when with an ebo or something, possibly, possibly with an ebo or uh, well, this is seventy six. The ebo would have been new, new, new at the time. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it could have just been uh, you know natural distortion too, um, uh, or sustain rather. Yeah, playing with some feedback um, and. I mean, like I'm pretty sure they had the amp up pretty loud for some of the noises they were making in there. You can get yeah. you can get some pretty long sustain on most guitars. If you got your amp loud enough and you're close enough. <laughs> it, uh, well, it kind of reminded me of some of the sounds that Neil Young would get. Yeah. Um, I don't, it wasn't him playing that, but it's, no. it's sound. I wonder if that was maybe the inspiration. inspiration. Yeah. Could be. Um, yeah, I don't know. I really liked, uh, Jaco Pistorius's, uh, you could really uh, hear his chops on this one, like he's his uh, his bass playing. I mean, for those of you who don't know, uh, Jaco Pastorius uh, went on to be in um, Oh Weather Report, um, which was a, a sort of a jazz fusion band from the late seventies, early eighties. Before he tragically passed, I don't even remember what he passed of, but he was really young. Um, but yeah, and this. Uh, he he was really a fantastic bass player. I mean, he he could do things that a lot of other people just couldn't do. And partly, he, he I think he's one of those guys that really kind of pioneered the whole fretless sound. I don't know of too many bass players that did that before. I mean, obviously, uh, stand-up bass has never had frets, and that's where the idea came from. Is the I mean, you pull the frets off a you know a, a jazz bass or a P bass, which is basically what he did to sort of mimic uh, sort of not necessarily the overall tone, but some of the tonality of, of, uh, of uh, a stand-up, um, you know, a stand-up bass. I would say a bass guitar is probably closer to a cello than a, a stand-up bass. In, uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. I mean, when you think of uh, the size of the body makes a big difference. But I think the scale, like the between the nut and the bridge, is pretty similar to a stand-up bass, okay. and that's what they were trying to replicate on, on a bass. Yeah. But yeah, the size of the body will make a big difference, especially if if it's still a somewhat acoustic. 
um, base. I mean, P base doesn't really matter, but it's it's plugged in. You know, it's got pickups picking it up, and I still think it comes off sounding kind of celloish in a lot. Of, it's somewhere in between, really. Yeah. Actually, um, was uh, Jocko the first uh, fretless bass player? Was he the one that kind of pioneered that? Less electric? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure, but he was definitely there near the beginning because I don't. Fretless basses weren't really a thing. A fretless electric wasn't necessarily too much of a thing. I mean, I guess there were electric stand ups, which were kind of the closest thing, but they sounded more like a, a standard upright bass. Yeah, just loud. Um, yeah, the Ampeg had one. I forget if there's another company. Actually, that's where Ampeg got the name from, was uh, the pickup in the peg of a for a stand-up bass. It's Ampeg. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they actually did have an electric bass, too, yeah. and I think they introduced that in the 60s at some point. Anyway, people had been messing around with things like that for a long time, but as for an actual fretless, the way it became to be known throughout the, the 80s and 90s, Yeah, I don't know how uh, how pre- uh, prevalent the idea even really was before Jocko came along. I think he really did pioneer that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Cool. It's an interesting sound, for sure. So, we've got uh, two songs left. Um, so, the next track is called Blue Motel Room. I'll be thinking of you. Changing gears. Um, that was an actual stand-up bass. That was. That <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't quite know what to say about that song. I really, I don't know if that might be my favorite or if Black Crow is my favorite. Hmm. This one was more of a, she was doing like sort of her version of a classic, like, jazz like in the Cole Porter or, or uh, George Gershwin uh, style of uh, songwriting and uh, I think she pulled it off quite well I mean she, she obviously has her own sort of style to it as well um, but uh, yeah and that sort of but the instrumentation where she intentionally started to do that sort of like jazz lounge sort of sound with the with the actual stand-up bass, and she didn't want to play too much around with uh, some more of the experimental things because she was trying to, again, get that sort of core jazz room sound, yeah. which is perfectly legitimate for a song like that, especially something called Blue Ho- Motel Room. It's just, It just really suits. One of the things that I really liked about this song was um, there was a moment where like she was sort of scat singing, yeah, and but it was like sort of intertwining and it was yeah. the different tracks and but it almost sounded just, like it almost sounded like the beach boys on on pet sounds yeah. or something like that doing that yeah in the background yeah i thought that yeah, was, was really, really interesting yeah really interesting really cool um yeah i i don't know i can't i can't say too much about the song it's just kind of it's it's just kind of perfect the way it is yeah <laughs> you know simple but effective exactly 
So we have arrived at the last song on the album. And the song is called Refuge of the Roads. I met a friend of spirit. He drank and womanized. And I sat before his sanity. I was holding back from crying. Sounds like Jaco had the last note there. <laughs> he had to get the last word in. <laughs> yep. That was a cool song. Yep. Again, uh, came back to all those textures with the uh, uh, some of those more experimental uh, electric uh, flangey fretless textures. Yeah, very yeah. Just uh, again, one of those songs. Uh, like there a lot of the songs on the album, just creating a soundscape rather than being too concerned with the details of the song. Hmm. Um, although. Less they, than some was, of the other ones. Yeah, there was there was definitely more of a structure here. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think they all had a certain amount of a structure. She had a basic idea, but there was a lot more um, freedom for the for the instruments or for the uh, musicians to sort of you know dance around the idea, the yeah. basic uh, structure. Yeah. Exactly. Um. And just closes the album really nicely. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, just it just you know ties everything up really nicely. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I thought this was a really, uh, I I'm not that familiar with Joni Mitchell's music, um, and uh, obviously I think that needs to change because this was a, a an, an amazing album. Yeah. Um, and I know she has a tendency to change it up from album to album. So this isn't like, this is just a taste of what she can do. She it, does all sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was, this was a, a great album. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, well thought. Of. It, again, it doesn't fall into the uh, category of things that I, I, I listen to uh, to a great deal. But yes, it was definitely uh, um, definitely worth the listen. Yeah, um, it was quite quite the uh, um, listening experience. Yeah, very very interesting, and 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 uh, it, it was very interesting to hear some of those tones sort of get developed and used for I'm assuming one of the first times ever before you know they would take over <laughs> certain segments of the you know yeah recording uh, world it's it's interesting when I hear an album like this that bridges gaps between I guess different eras or different uh, yeah you know musical trends or whatever mm-hmm like we did with the first, um, uh, the first episode we did with the U2 album, where there was a lot of st- stuff on there that would later become very common in the 90s. Yeah. But it wasn't in the 80s. And no. so it's interesting to hear where th- certain trends and where certain sounds really ha- get their start. Mm-hmm. Someone has an idea and it catches on and that becomes the standard for 
five or six years. Exactly. Like gated reverb with uh, Peter Gabriel. Yeah. And then, of course, um, Phil Collins came along, used it, and became a huge hit. And then everybody and their uncles and mothers had to do you do the same thing for yeah. an entire decade before people yeah. got sick of it. <laughs> yeah. I And something like that where it's it's uh it can be done well but it yeah. can be really annoying yep too so yeah um but yeah it's it's always interesting when those things appear and, and those gaps are are closed out mm-hmm. um yeah that's all i have to say about the album do you have any final thoughts no, I think we uh, can pretty much wrap this one up. That's cool. uh, number four, I do believe. Number four, yeah. All right, well, if that's everything, uh, I'm Jeremy Boyd. Yeah, and I'm John Van Dyke. Take it easy. You have been listening to Polyphonic Press. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Polyphonic Press. Check out the website, polyphonicpress.com. Feel free to drop us a line at polyphonicpressmusic at gmail.com. And finally, you can support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash polyphonicpress.